Well, Tara and I have been married now. Next month, it'll be 28 years. And uh, it doesn't look possible. I don't look old enough to be married 28 years. I don't answer that. And uh, one of the things Terry's introduced me to is the ideal of... Um, is Kentucky Family Reunions, and I see Inus is here, and, and so I can remember Kentucky Family Reunions to a certain extent are different than other family reunions. Uh, one way they're different is where they're typically located. Uh, we had a lot of Kentucky Family Reunions, and if, you, if you've had one of these, you may relate to this, in graveyards. Any, anybody ever been to a, a family reunion in the graveyard? Okay, maybe we're unique. And uh, a lot of pictures taken, a lot of pictures taken with the uh, living and those who've passed on. Not just the stones, don't get me wrong. Uh, but, but that ideal of a family reunion in, in a graveyard or a cemetery was a little bit different. And, you know, that, to have a, everybody gather. But, but they were fun, you know, we, after we played volleyball. No, we didn't play volleyball. That would have been bad. No, we didn't do that. But, but after the reunion, they, they were great. You got to know people. I got to know people in Terry's extended family. Reunions are good for that. Who likes family reunions? Who can't stand them? Don't raise your hand. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, family reunions are good. We, we need that connection. You know, church can be like a reunion at times, that, that closer relations, those deeper connections. I believe everybody in this room wants to belong, that, that that's kind of uh, bred into us, this ideal that we, we want to belong to something. And so as we deal with communion, one of the things that we're going to talk about is connection. And we'll talk about that a little bit further. But we're dealing with the sacraments. And one of the things the sacrament speaks to is our need or our desire or the hope for God that we would be bound together in closer relationship. We've been dealing with this idea that the sacraments are not simply testimony but transformations. Some theological... Um, Theological traditions will look at the sacraments as simply memorial. That's just something to look back. But, but we believe that, that the sacrament of communion is something that transforms us from within. We believe that in the sacrament of, of, of communion, when we partake of the communion together, not, not that the communion becomes Jesus, but Jesus is present in this place. It's, it's something where we, we place ourselves in the presence of this transforming Jesus. And so there's transformation that occurs when we receive the sacraments. It's, it's not just something we just go through the motions and do, but we, we should expect something when we receive communion. Uh, the, the phrase that... that um, lost a name, sorry. Staples' book, Rob Staples' book uses as a sacrament of sanctification. In other words, that this is a sacrament that will shape us. Uh, that when in taking the sacrament, there's a transforming or a shaping that occurs. And one way that happens is by understanding the meaning of the sacrament, the meaning of communion as we receive it. And so we've been exploring all these different meanings of the sacrament of communion, of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. We've been looking at all these different meanings so that we can understand what God is trying to shape in the life of His church and the life of His people through the receiving of the sacrament. And so we, we talked about the first week, Pastor Josh talked about celebration. And I think when you talk about celebration, one of the things you're talking about is Thanksgiving. You're talking about praise. So, so something is shaped in us when we, when we express thanksgiving. You know, thanksgiving is just not an attitude, but thanksgiving is an action that we take that shapes our attitude and our perspective. Praise is an action we take, not always because we feel like it, 
but because in doing that, God can shape a different attitude within us. God can do something. We, we talked about the cost, considering the cost of Jesus on the cross. And when we see, when we see the elements, we, we are reminded that there was a price that was paid. And so when we consider Jesus' sacrifice, there is a call in our life that it calls us to something more. And, and not only that, but there's a connection. And today we're going to talk about that connection. And in Rob Staples' book, he calls this the fellowship of the faithful. That, that when we receive communion, we receive it with an understanding. We receive it together as a group. We receive it together because there's an understanding that there's a connection here. There's a spiritual, supernatural, extraordinary connection that has happened through Jesus Christ. Uh, there, there, there's churches, and, and I'm, I'm not saying this is a wrong way to do it, but I've resisted that, that has communion every week, and it's just as people want to receive it, and, and some people like that. I have resisted that because I truly believe that communion is a body act, that it's something we partake of together. And one of the reasons I believe that is because of this connection that is so important when we receive communion. C communion is an invitation for Christ to take his rightful place in the center of our gathering. That, that when we've gathered, we say Jesus Christ sits at the head of the table, that he is the center of this gathering, that, that we are the family of God, we are the body of Christ, we, we are the, the church home, the church house, that, that Christ is in the center of our gathering. And in this connection... As we submit to one another in this connection, God can shape something new within us. And, and I don't want to re-preach the Ecclesia series, but, but we talked about that in the series. We, we talked about the ideal uh, of the importance of praising together, of being thankful together, and, 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 and being observers of other people praising and being thankful, even going through difficult times because it shapes something within us. We, we talked about how when we serve together, there's something shaping, there's something transformative that occurs in that. We, we talked about learning together and, and sharing the good news together. Us is greater than, than me by myself, that, that we are greater as a group than we are individually. That there, there's more than me present here, that, that us has a power. Now, now, we can elect not to be a part of that. You can be here and not be here. Don't say amen, okay? You, you can be here but not truly be invested and not really be open to being here. It, it's possible. I've done it. You know, I've been in churches where I'm there but I'm not there. Uh, yesterday at... Um, upward we had a coach the kids are all sitting on the far side of the building on under a basket and so one of the coaches wanted to get up and coach on the other side where his kids were on offense and and the ref said are you a coach and he said yeah I said well you gotta get down there with your team <laughs> you can't be up here he goes well then I'm just a fan and it reminded me I had an assistant coach when Spencer played in fourth grade that loved to yell at the refs and, and we were playing away somewhere, I think we were in Bellbrook, and we were getting ripped off like we typically did on the road. And all you people with kids that play sports, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and Lee was like all over the referee, and finally the referee came over to me, I was the head coach, and said, he can't be doing that. You can stay stuff, but the assistant coach can't be yelling at me like that. And, and so Lee said, well, what if I'm just a fan? And the ref said, well, you can yell as a fan. So Lee quit coaching and went over to be a fan so he could yell at the referee, okay? Um, 
I think there's a part of that in church. That, that, that there's a possibility that, that we can just withdraw simply be, so we can be critical of what's going on in the church. That God calls us to be a part so that we're connected. And see, when we're connected and we see this place as family, it changes our perspective of our imperfections. <laughs> uh, several years ago, I, I was doing, I was a viewing, and I, I can't remember who it was, and, and it was when I was here, and somebody came up from the community and was talking about the church, and they started talking bad about the church. Now, now I understand you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect. And, and maybe there were some, some hints of truth in some of the things that he was saying. But can I tell you, if, it, if I wouldn't have been a pastor, I'd have probably smacked him right in the head. I said to myself, would Jesus smack him in the head? And the answer was no. See, you can become defensive of a place that you're truly connected, right? You understand what I'm saying? When it's really family, I mean, I understand my family has flaws, but for someone from the outside to talk about those flaws is completely different. And so God is calling us to this deep place of connection where we love each other despite imperfection, despite flaws, that, that we allow God to be the center of this place and there's this close connection. I hate to say because of, irregardless of, you know, sometimes those flaws, they're worked out in community. And when we talk about this, you, you can't talk about this ideal of connection and, and what's going on with communion without getting into the ideal of table fellowship. You know, table fellowship was not a, a, a phrase you'd hear often as I was growing up in the church, but it's a, a significant phrase in the kingdom. You know, the kingdom of God is embodied with this ideal of table fellowship. In the first century, the table was sacred. It was an extension of the temple. The temple was this holy place where there couldn't be unclean people or unclean food, and the table became an extension of that. And so when people would gather around a table, it was a sacred time, it was a sacred space, and it was almost a worship experience. And so that's why Jesus is dealing with Pharisees that washed their hands a certain way before they sat down and eat, because they were preparing not just to eat, but they were preparing for worship. And since this was a sacred place, it also became a place of exclusion. That, that people who were not worthy could not be at the table. And so the temple was this place, there, there was exclusion at the temple, and this will become important later. There's unclean food, unclean people's not welcome at the temple. And so in 2 Samuel, we have the story of David, and he's going to conquer Jerusalem. And uh, that the people who are in Jerusalem say, uh, this, is so, this is such a stronghold that the blind and the lame couldn't conquer Jerusalem. And after, G, after David conquers Jerusalem, he, he says this thing, the blind and the lame will not come into the house. It's probably more of a taunt, but they take it as a proverb. And so there's this abhorrent practice by the time Jesus is walking the earth where the blind and the lame aren't welcome in the temple and they've taken this taunt of David and made it almost a rule of life, a place of exclusion. And this was extended to the table. That, that, that their tables, their, their family tables wouldn't include unclean people, wouldn't include unclean food. And Jesus turns this upside down. You can't read the Gospels without seeing Jesus turning this ideal of 
a sacred table and making it a place for everybody. You, you can't read the Gospels and not see it. He, he makes the table open to women and tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus shares his table with others that others would just reject. Well, we see this in the temple too. And I preached about this not too long ago. After the triumphant entry, Jesus upsets the money changers and he goes into the temple and, and it says, and, and it's unclear where they're at. I think they're in the, in the inner temple where the gen, only the Jewish men could be because I think that's why the Pharisees get so upset. It says the lame and the blind come to him. Jesus says... This is a place, my Father's presence, my Father's grace is for everyone. You know, from, from our perspective, this ideal of handicapped people being um, outside the realm of grace and outside the realm of hospitality, it's abhorrent, right? But this is the culture Jesus is operating in. I guess the question would be, before I move too far past this, is, Who's not welcome at your table? <laughs> what label would be unwelcome in this place from your perspective? Um, I'll let you wrestle with that. I'm not going to name particular things. Because as I say that, there's probably labels that are coming up to you. The, the truth is, Jesus specialized in opening his table and opening up his life to people that others would exclude. And if we're going to walk like Jesus and think like Jesus, we have to be people of grace and mercy and inclusion, not exclusion and judgment. You know, we, we live in a... When Jesus came, they, they expected this Messiah of judgment and this Messiah that would point his finger and tell them all their faults. And, and instead, Jesus practiced inclusion and grace. Anybody watch the news? It stinks, right? If there's ever a day, if there's ever a day that the church has to be a place of radical inclusion and grace and acceptance and love, it's now. We live in a world that is starving to death for a place, for a, a, a vacation from the gross world we live in. And the church needs to be that place. But this ideal of table fellowship is central to communion. We, we see in the initiation passage in Luke 22, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, giving thanks, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Um, 
you know, you guys get the benefit of me preaching these things twice. After I preach this, and as I'm sitting listening to worship today, and I'm thinking about this scripture, isn't that the state of the church? Isn't that where we naturally fall? That oftentimes we fall into this place where we say, well, that person's out, and that person's best. That person, I don't think that person gets it. And that person doesn't do enough. And that person doesn't give enough. These practices are divisive to the kingdom. They're divisive to the church. Jesus said to them, The king of the Jew, kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the, one, the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It's not the one who is at the table, but I'm among you as the one who serves. <laughs> Communion is centered around this ideal of submissive fellowship. So submitted to Jesus and to others. And in our submission to Jesus and our submission to others, Jesus takes center place. He takes his rightful role. Jesus is the center of the table. And so the disciples gather around Jesus and they create this new family, this new people of God celebrating table fellowship. And he invites us in 21st century Marysville, Ohio, as the people of God gathered to meet with God, to gather around this sacrament and allow Jesus to sit at the center of the table and be the head of our family. 1 Corinthians 11 has created a lot of conflict in the church over the years. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about receiving communion in an unworthy manner. And, and what's going on here is that the rich people are bringing in food. They're having these great love feasts and the rich people are bringing in food and they're eating and the poor people are just kind of watching them eat. It's kind of like at the work day Saturday when Amy didn't bring me food and she brought everybody else food. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry, Amy, I couldn't help but call you out. Uh, she didn't know I was here. And it was just McDonald's. I don't need to be eating McDonald's anyhow. And all God's people said, amen, right? Maybe it's a better illustration. It's like Kobe. You know, when I'm eating, Kobe likes to sit and watch me eat. You know, his tongue comes out, but I don't give him anything. And, you know, that's what's going on here. You have the rich people who are eating, and the poor people are just watching them eat. And, and, and Paul says something like, don't you have homes to eat in? You know, you're receiving communion in an unworthy manner. In other words, you don't understand. Communion's about sharing and submission and connection, not the haves having and the have-nots not. Unfortunately, people have built theologies. They've built buildings based on a misunderstanding of that scripture. I, I know of a church that, that built their fellowship hall this far <laughs> from their worship center because you're not supposed to eat in the church. It's not about eating in the church. It's about submission to one another. And, and Jesus is calling us to something more. Their communion was unworthy because they did not open up their tables to each other. That's what made it un unworthy. 
Now, we're following up the Ecclesia series, and the Ecclesia series, I, I mentioned or I said this, when we limit church to our blood family, we can still become me-centered. When we limit church connections to those who have similar interests and we consider friends, church becomes a clique. And God's calling us to more than a clique. He's calling us to more than comfortable. Uh, we, we can be, and I, you know, people often, oh, it's pastor preaching on, you know, something. No, I'm just trying to preach true to what this means. A church can be friendly, but not open, right? You, you understand, every church believes it's friendly, but not every church is open. Love can be limited. We, 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 can, we can put on the illusion of friendliness that people can only get so far, but not any further. We receive communion, unworthy, when we do it in a spirit of cliques, unforgiveness, grudges, and division. When we receive communion in that manner, if there's division, if there's holding people off, then we're missing the point of what communion is all about. Something significant happens in communion when it's taken in the right spirit. And, and the Greek word that you see is koinia. Uh, koinia is communion, it's fellowship, it's participation, it's sharing. And, and one writer says, a meal together cements friendship, expresses care and consideration, and produces koinia. Communion, sharing, and togetherness. And so communion is this vision of fellowship that God wants to extend not just in the sanctuary, but to our homes, our Sunday school classes, throughout this building, outside these walls. God wants us to experience and extend this attitude of koinia. Communion calls us past division to koinia. And so when you think about this, how do we do this? Well, one thing's the family table. Next week we have, I believe, is this our fourth family table? And I haven't heard anything but positive things. Now, don't come up after the service and say, hey, well, since you hadn't heard anything negative, uh, all I've heard is positive. And if, you, if you've not been able to be here or just haven't come, you've missed out. These have been great opportunities. They've been fun. They've been light. People have enjoyed time together. And I would encourage you, come out. We're having soup next Sunday night. Who likes soup, right? Soup is good. And so we're going to have a great time together. We'll probably play some games and, and get to know each other just a little bit better. I'm convinced of this. Church that is only this place and this time and only a select few will never truly be church. <laughs> that, that if this is all it is, and you know we, we, do, we do an offering and we sing a song, few songs and I preach a message and, and we leave this place and maybe we feel better or worse about ourselves depending on uh, the kind of message I preach, then, then this will never truly be church. But, but church, for church to become church, things happen outside these walls. I was listening to a podcast this week and the, the, the speaker said this, that they were called to fill tables, not stadiums. And, and I thought about that in this context. What, what, what if church is about filling tables, not rooms? See, as a pastor, I'm judged on, I'm successful or I'm unsuccessful, depending on how many people I get in this room in seats on any particular Sunday morning, how many people I get to join a, a membership role, how much offerings we receive. In, in the church world, that is 
that is the measurement of success. But what if the measurement of success was not how many people were here, but how many people were connected? What's our responsibility? Hospitality. Can I be honest? That's not a word that I heard too often in a biblical sense for the first 30, 40 years of my, my life. I never considered that a spiritual gift, but the, the older I get, the more important I think that gift is. You know, one reason I think it is more important, I think our world has pulled us away from this attitude of hospitality. I believe, man, this is going to sound like an old man saying this, but I believe in the churches I grew up in, hospitality was easier to practice than it is in our culture in our day. That, that we're pulled away from each other like no other time in history. And in and, and years gone by, it was a lot easier to go to somebody's house and just sit and have a time together. Hospitality, it's, it's, we see our homes difference. Our, our homes are gifts God has given us to bless others. And so we open up our table, we open up our homes, we open up our space, our life to practice hospitality. And these become Christ-centered relationships. And where Christ is the center of the relationship, there's forgiveness and there's encouragement and there's generosity. See, Jesus came to fill this void in this relationship I have with him. And in that void, Jesus speaks hope and love and life and grace and generosity and forgiveness. And in the same way, Jesus came to fill the voids and relationships we have with others. And when we allow Jesus to be in the center of those relationships, regardless of where that other person's faith walk might be, Jesus speaks forgiveness and grace and mercy and love and generosity through us in the midst of that relationship. And hospitality allows us, practicing hospitality allows us to embody that. Can I give you another image? Uh, think, think of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has his disciples around him and there's the 5,000 men plus women and children and, and, and they're hungry and you know, there's no dominoes to order or anything and so they got to do something for them. And you know, they're, they're, they're asking Jesus for a way out, basically. Hey, Jesus, can you send them home? <laughs> and Jesus says, you feed them. <laughs> Don't you hate it when Jesus does stuff like that to you? Let's be honest enough to say, sometimes Jesus will say, you do it. He tells them, you feed them. So this idea of hospitality is meant to be extended through God's people. Now, I think one easy way that happens is when we leave space for others. I've got one uncle left. All my uncles have passed away but one. And my Uncle George, my Aunt Glenda and my Uncle George, we always lovingly called him Uncle Georgie Porgy. And... Uh, uh, Uncle George and Aunt Glenda lived like three doors down from us off Route 44 in Connersville, Indiana. And so I would go down to their house, and they were what I've called, and I've used this phrase before because I think it's, a, I think it's an appropriate phrase, open-door people. That you could just walk in. And, you know, you didn't have to, hey, anybody home? You could just walk in their house. You could just get in their fridge. Whether they were there or not, they didn't care. They were open-door people. I think open-door people are people who practice hospitality. Now, I'm not advocating that you show up at my house at 3 a.m. and get in my fridge. 
but I hope that I can be an open door person where somebody could feel free to stop and see me and talk to me. My, my, my grandma Moore was an open door person. Uh, she's been dead now close to 30 years. And Grandma Moore, I can remember um, her neighbors would just come into the house <laughs> and borrow things. You know, she had a phone. It was kind of a poor neighborhood where she bought the house. It wasn't a poor neighborhood when she bought it, but over the years it developed into almost the slums of Connersville, basically. And all the people would come and borrow and use her phone. And I, I can remember coming in to, to her house, and, you know, she was she was... Indianapolis District Nazarene strict, and that was strict, if you have any idea. Let me tell you, her hair was tied so tight on the top of her head, I don't, you know, I, I don't know why her temples weren't screaming, uh, but, you know, she was strict. You know, no TVs. Uh, the death sentence was to be fined a deck of cards in my grandma Moore's house. Uh, that would be death for you. But she would be, you'd come in and there'd be somebody sitting on the, the couch waiting for her, and she'd be praying, and so you'd walk in the door to see Grandma, and, and somebody go, <laughs> open door to, to borrow sugar, to make a call. Open door people practice hospitality. When we practice hospitality, we invite Christ to take center place in that relationship. So they ask, how can you extend hospitality? I, I believe in two weeks, there's a football game that football teams from Ohio are not invited to um, call, called the Super Bowl, right? You know, so, so we can watch that without any, you know, we don't care who wins or loses because it's never one of us. Never the Bengals or the Browns. You know what the most social night in America is? Super Bowl Sunday. It's more social than Thanksgiving. It's more social than Christmas. It's more social than New Year's Day. It's the most social event in America on a yearly basis. Matter of fact, they're, they're talking about at some point, I, I would say in my lifetime, there will be a national holiday the Monday after Super Bowl Sunday. You, you can go, ah, oh, that's awful. I, it doesn't matter to me. It's just another day off for you, right? But Super Bowl Sunday, invite somebody to your house. Have some people over to watch a football game and allow people to begin to, to build relationships, maybe a neighbor. Watch the commercials if you only watch the commercials. And I've got good news for you. I believe for the first time this year, there are going to be political commercials during the Super Bowl. Yeah. Woo! Praise the Lord. Open your home for a meal. Where's that one that exclude, that's excluded that you can include? Student, can you, can you bypass it? And, and, and I hope, I don't think I'm so far from what schools are, but, but I think schools still have that level of clickdom. Could, could you bypass a popular table and sit with a marginalized? Could, could you move past office gossip towards friendship? Could, could you love the unlovable neighbor and all of us have one? Could you extend grace to the critical? See, there's all sorts of ways, just little things. When you talk about hospitality, that this isn't rocket science. This isn't, this isn't learning Greek theology or German philosophers. This is just simply practicing friendship, particularly to those that might be excluded from others, by others. Well, end with one final thought. Um, yeah, I talked about David's proverb, the blind and the lame will not enter the house. That becomes kind of their mantra of why they can exclude handicapped people from the kingdom or from the temple. After David's in power, 
he decides he wants to extend kindness to Jonathan's family, to, to Saul's family. And he asks, anyone left of Jonathan's family? And, and they say, well, there's one, Mephibosheth. Can you say that together? That's a fun name to say, Mephibosheth, right? Say it with me, Mephibosheth. That's what we were going to call Wyatt. And uh, no, we weren't going to call him Mephibosheth. That would have been a cool name, though, wouldn't it, Wyatt? Yeah, okay. No. Yeah. They say, well, there's one guy, Mephibosheth. But David, he's crippled in both feet. In other words, this proverb of David's, they're afraid that somehow this will exclude him from receiving kindness from the king. But he's invited to the king's table, and he eats as one of David's sons. And then the passage ends. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. <laughs> I was at a Southwest Ohio district assembly, and uh, I don't even remember what we were singing, but Mike Dennis was sitting up at the top, and just all of a sudden Mike gave a big whoo! You know, and it, 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 was, it was, you know, you could sense the Holy Spirit. You could sense it was true praise. Can I tell you, every time I say that, he was blind, lame in both feet. My spirit goes, whoo! I don't know about you. For the past two weeks, I'll be out walking the dog, and just all of a sudden, that phrase will come to me. Now, he was lame in both feet. See, he was invited not because he was worthy, but because the king invited him. And you've been invited to this table not because you're worthy, not because you've paid the price, not because you've earned your spot. You've been invited because Jesus has invited you to share his table. And he invites you. He encourages you to invite others. Amy's going to come up and sing a song for communion that we've sang several times. And the words go like this. Hear the good news. You've been invited. No matter what others may say, your darkest sins will be forgiven. You will always have a place. So come you weak and heavy hearted. Don't try to hide your earthly scars. For in his eyes, we all are equal. Don't be afraid. Come as you are. We receive communion by intinction. In the center section, there's, um, there's little bot juices if you'd prefer to take it that way, and there's gluten-free elements there as well. We're receiving it where you just dip. You'll come forward from the back and dip and, and, then, and then go go back to your seat. And we'll read Scripture as Bob's coming to prepare the elements, and then I'm going to pray with us. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 